99% of the time, I don't want to take care of a pool, but uh-huh. it'd be worth it for days like this. <laughs> for the like one day a year that it's just really hot, you don't have to work. Yeah, I get it. You can always get warmer, right? Like I don't mind when it's cold because I can always put on more clothes, get under a blanket, you know, sit around a fire, whatever. Like you can always get warmer, but you can't take your skin off at a well, certain point. Oh, I mean, with that attitude, probably not. <laughs> Welcome to episode 363 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Lovin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Brian, for the love of God, let's please keep this one short. I'm going to die. Okie doke. Let's get right into <laughs> so it. It's so warm. It's so hot. <laughs> I'm going to sweat through my clothes before it's Okay. Done. Okay. Record time. Here we go. This week, we are supported by Hover. You're a designer. That means you need a portfolio. And if you need a portfolio, it means you need a website. If you do not have a website... Today is the day to get one. Hover is the best way to register a domain for your website. Get 10% off your first purchase when you sign up at hover.com slash design details. Thank you, Hover. Thanks, Hover. We're also supported this week by Float. Float gives you the most accurate view of your team's availability and work schedule. So relevant in this remote working uh, world we live in. Mm-hmm. It lets you set custom work hours, add public holidays and time off. Schedule status to let your team know where you're working from and when, and so much more. You can learn more at float.com slash design details. Thanks, Float. Thanks, Float. We also have some new VIPs this week. Very important. Yay. Yay. <laughs> if we had gone two weeks, who? Out of like... Panicked. M- mild panic. I would do like a little... Like a breath check, like is it is it is it me? Did I <laughs> do I need a mint? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we have some new supporters today, so huge shout outs and thank you to Hannah Cunningham, Patrick Morgan, Monica Howe, Ramil Asusena, Chloe Xie, and Ugo Chiretu. I hope I pronounced all these correctly. That was a bit of a gauntlet. Good job. I think you did a good job. We had had to look up a couple just to be just to be sure. But we we try our hardest to uh, pronounce them correctly. Well, Brian tries his hardest to pronounce them correctly. Well, I have been on this pronounce names YouTube channel many, many times. Mm -hmm. What a fascinating YouTube channel, right? Like just pronounce names. Mm-hmm. has every name. How do they do it? Yep. How do they know? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm happy it exists. Yeah, happy it exists. And thank you all for supporting the show. It means a lot. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. This week, we're also sponsored once again by Webflow. Y'all, Webflow helps you make ridiculously cool websites. And one of the ways that it lets you do that is through its rich interactions and animations tool set. It lets you bring your designs to life with really cool features like parallax scrolling, mouse and cursor-based motion triggers. You can add custom keyframes and After Effects-based animations. Uh, it lets you transform anything on your website, like elements, sizes, styles, positions, all of that based on your scroll progress, when you get to a certain element or as you progress through the entire page. And all of this allows you to bring really expressive animations to your site that builds and, and moves and transforms as your users interact with the web page. You can even create multi-step timeline-based animations. It's literally as easy to use as Keynote. Like, it's so simple. But of course, what Webflow does is it converts all of these steps into beautiful, clean, generated working code. Webflow integrates with After Effects and Lottie files. If you've been using Lottie, 
this is great. It's mm-hmm. going to simplify all of your codes. You don't have to wade through the JavaScript to get really beautiful animations on your website. And you can just create all those in After Effects directly. You can read up on how interactions and animations with Webflow are going to make your website so much better. We'll have links in the show notes, but just head straight to designdetails.fm slash Webflow to get started. And if you do that and sign up for a new annual account, you're going to get 10% off. Go make a really cool website. That's at designdetails.fm slash Webflow. All right. If you didn't know we're a listener-supported podcast, that means that you, dear listener, make the show possible. Every week we uh, have software that helps us record, edit, produce, and also uh, just helps support our time that we put into the show every week. So if you want to support the show, if you've been enjoying the episodes or gotten any value out of it, you can support us directly by going to patreon.com slash design details. Starts at just a buck a month, but what you get in return is an extra bonus segment in every episode. Well, you'll get the whole backlog and then everything going forward, you get full episodes. And that bonus segment is just like um, an extra cool things or an extra listener question, always design related. Sometimes up to half of the, the episode we, we spend hanging out in the sidebar, uh, but sometimes they'll be shorter, but just a little, you know, a little bonus every every week. So if that sounds interesting, patreon.com slash design details. Thank you everyone who supported us this week and uh, we hope to see you in the sidebar. All right, Marshall, you, you put some follow-up on our agenda. Yeah. So Kelly Dumbotny on Twitter, I guess this is more of a tweet. She said, wanted to pass on something we do as a product team that helps us prioritize our days. We set three to five priorities each day. Usually we plan them the night before. Send out in our Slack channel. And at day's end, we report in on how we did. For example, two out of three for today. Tomorrow will be X, Y, and Z. I cannot tell you how much this has helped focus our time and also has taught us to break down tasks into digestible, achievable bits. Highly recommended. Mm. This is great. And this actually uh, goes to something that we talked about in today's sidebar. Uh, Achievable bits is kind of a cool name for like a video game review where you're like, it'd be like tutorials for how to get all the unlocks or something, you know, achievable bits. Or like a gamified to-do app. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-mm. I think you've stumbled upon some a nice branding opportunity here for somebody <laughs> who wants to jump on that. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, buy the domain with Hover. Hey. <laughs> hey, there you go. Achievablebits.fm. That one's for free. Yeah, but thanks uh, for writing in, Kelly. That's a that's a good system. We don't do anything like that personally, but that seems like it would be a really... I, I guess I do that unofficially in my head, but I don't write it down or share it with anybody. Do you do that? Mm, no. Oh, actually, that's that's false. We have a uh, tool called GeekBot, which is a Slack integration that prompts you every morning. It asks, uh, "What did you do yesterday? What do you What are your goals for today? Mm. And is anything blocking you?" And so we have that for the mobile team. And so everyone writes that up every morning. You can, you can just scroll through, see what people are working on. If anyone's blocked, hopefully it's not you blocking them. But you can just get a temperature and a pulse of what people are up to that week. Cool. Well, thanks, Kelly. All right. Our main topic today is a listener question from Joseph Cooper, issue 449 on our Design Details repo, titled, Talking to Users. Joseph says, forgive me if you've already done an episode like this. I thought of the question in response to episode 362 and noticed neither of you really touched on the research side of product design. Marshall, what happened? We didn't mention this. Yeah. Well, I think it was mentioned as one of the things that Luke already did. Hmm. Fair enough. All right. Joseph continues, I've moved into a new company recently and have luckily had the opportunity to have a lot more customer interaction than in previous companies, and I'm loving it. 
After chatting to several other designers, though, it made me realize that a lot of other designers and teams tend to really underlook the value this can add to building a product. I would love to hear more about your day jobs, how you incorporate user feedback, testing, and research into building your products. Is this something you do? When do you do it? How often? Etc. I'd also love to know more about how you structure these sessions and ask the right questions to make sure you're extracting the most value possible out of them. Mm. Mm. Research is coming up a lot. I think this yeah. is... Which is good. I think it's good that this is on people's minds. You know what? I have a colleague that I want to get on. I've been trying to get on the show for a while. So maybe stay tuned. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, we should. Hey, uh, maybe we should get a researcher on here to like. Tell <laughs> yeah, <us>. go, go <laughs> figure. No, I've been trying to get her on the show for a long time. So she's awesome. Uh, I think the, the timing is good for this. So yeah, stay tuned. Okay. Well, I'm happy to share some of my experiences just through going from startup to big company and now GitHub's kind of right in the middle. And I've found that it I've worked across the gradient of like ridiculously informal to ridiculously formal. So for example, uh, at Buffer, when it, we were just a tiny startup, we would talk to customers as often as possible, but we didn't really have great mechanisms to reach out to people. I think we've eventually figured out a flow there, but we basically tried to just open up the doors as much as possible for inbound. Like send us feedback, tweet at us email us like we want to talk to you and when people would actually come in with questions or problems that would be our hook to be like all right this is so perfect can we hop on a call and talk about it for 20 minutes that transitioned at facebook to something that was way more formal like we have a professional user experience research team where literally everybody on that team has like phds in Uh anthropology or user behavior psychology like (laughs) yeah ridiculously smart people. Yeah, not intimidating at all. No, no, no. (laughs) And they're pros. And that was such a good learning experience. We did everything from in-person conversations to polls on the website to data diving with our data scientists to building interactive prototypes to traveling. We did a lot of international research and like you would go and sit with people in their homes and talk with them and learn about their experiences and their days and their problems and how they use technology And then you could show them prototype on your phone and watch them play around with it. So that was like very, very formal and and really solid. And now I'm at GitHub and I would say it's like halfway in between. We have a user research team. It's still growing, being developed. We're figuring out the processes and getting researchers onto all the product teams. But for my work specifically on mobile, we're doing a lot of manual outreach and simultaneously trying to open up as many doors for inbound contact as possible. So We have feedback forms in the app. We tweet out a lot and request user feedback. We will share upcoming features quite early and and try and get people to talk to us. We're starting to finally get some quantitative data going where we can dig into what kinds of people are using these features the most, where are people getting stuck, how can we get in touch with them and, and make sure it's okay to email them and ask them to hop on a call. And so I find that that balance of having manual outreach and then inbound is enough to keep us filled are uh, occupied quite often. So uh, to answer some of your more specific questions, when do we do this? I think it's throughout, but generally it kind of depends on the problem you're working on. I think, you know, if you're trying to validate a prototype, then you would do it when you have the prototype done. But if you're in early stages of product development or you're not sure what you're going to work on next quarter, that's a good time to start talking to customers. Like really understand how they use the the thing that you're building. Make sure that you're focusing on the right problems, like asking you know, okay, it's great that you've described a problem, but how important is that problem to you amongst all the other problems in your life? That way 
You can be sure you're not wasting your time or your team's time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, making sure you're working on the right problem, making sure you have the right scope for, for the work to solve that problem. Of course, as you end up building the thing, I find that having follow-up calls with people to show prototypes or even just show Figma files. I've been walking customers through my Figma files for the last few calls, and it's been awesome just to get gut feedback and, and talk through some of the decisions that we're thinking about. And we have smart people that use GitHub and getting to get their opinions has been really cool. Uh, how often? It kind of depends. I think there's a little bit of a tension between, you know, you want to talk to customers a lot, always be listening to their problems, be understanding how they're using your the thing that you're building. But you have to balance that with actually building the thing, right? Like you can't just spend 40 hours a week talking to customers. Otherwise, <laughs> you're never going to build anything. Uh-huh. So I find that I would just see what feels right. Um, I think it depends on the, the stage of the product that you're building, how big of a company, how mature is the thing that you're working on. Are you just trying to get gut checks on a thing? Or are you trying to go wide on a problem space? So I don't know. For me, we went like a couple months, like when we were just in heads down building phase. And we didn't talk to anybody. Then we shipped a bunch of stuff. And now we're talking to people and preparing for the next round of things. And that's ended up looking like, I don't know, three to five customer conversations a week for the past few weeks. And that feels like a good enough cadence. It's like enough people to you know start to cross-reference some problems that they're describing or workflows that they go through, but not so much that you're just overwhelmed and like can't actually execute on any of that feedback. Yeah. I think some tips that I have here that I've just learned over the years is really trying to focus on discerning underlying themes when you're talking to customers rather than individual concerns. Like it's so fun when you talk with a person who is excited about the thing that you're building and they complain about it because if they complain about it on a call with you, it means they care enough to take the time out of their day to solve that problem. And that's so cool. Like I love it when that happens. But I think it's really tempting in the moment to be like, yes, I'm going to solve this problem for you, the human being sitting across the screen from me, Mm -hmm. rather than letting yourself sort of flow through a week's worth of conversations and try to discern themes or patterns or symptoms, underlying causes, like teasing apart the real problem rather than specific pain points. And I think to do that, you know, you have to avoid the solution space too early in the process. I think it's so tempting. And I I have this literally every conversation, like somebody will describe a problem they're having with the mobile app uh, at GitHub. And in the back of my head, I'm immediately like, oh, I bet we could solve that if we did this, if we did this, I bet this is technically Uh possible. I bet this would be pretty quick win. And I have to stop myself. It's so tempting to just jump to solution space, but that's not the right process. You always want to talk, make sure you're listening and engaging, let the conversation happen. And then afterwards, debrief. And then after a few conversations, synthesize that. Then start to think about solution space. But doing it too early, I find you lock yourself into something in your head that might be great for that one person, that one use case. But you might get too attached to it and miss the sort of broader forest for the trees, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, afterwards, you know, cross-reference, stack rank, back up people's problems with data. So if someone's describing a specific workflow or, or a place that they get stuck in their app, can you confirm that it's not just a bug for them, but it's actually something systemic? Is there ways that you can find patterns in the data that would confirm that this is something really valuable to work on? I think another thing to keep in mind that is helpful, and I learned at Facebook, is to really try and ask open-ended questions Never ask leading questions. I mean, there's a whole science to this and I'm not a pro, but like 
Don't ask leading questions. Don't ask them to confirm your pre-existing beliefs about what they're experiencing. Just always ask them, mm-hmm. you know, like describe how that felt. Why do you feel this way? How is that working for you? Never that's good, right? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Like you don't want to lead them into answering. Another thing that I've found, which I think this maybe depends on the product or the person you're talking to, but in user research calls, people don't like to hurt other people's feelings. And so if you go into it and say, hey, we're working on this thing. We're so excited about it. We've been pouring a ton of work into it. I'm the lead designer on it. I'm going to show you my mocks. And then you show them something. They're going to be like, holy shit, I don't want to hurt this person's feelings. And they'll be like, oh, it's great. I would totally use that for sure, for sure, for sure. (laughs) And that's not great. You're not getting any value out of that. I remember at Facebook on a couple of the research trips that we did, I think our our researcher would always guide the conversation and they would always say things like, um, I didn't design this. Our designers back in California, they'll get a distilled version of your feedback. Please feel free to be critical. No one in this room is directly related. Like, trying to create a little bit of space for that person to feel comfortable to criticize, to speak how they might naturally want to describe the problems that they're experiencing. And a beauty of keeping things open-ended like that and and inviting people to speak is I think you're going to find a conversation will weave into unexpected territory. I think generally, at least in my experience, you always kind of want the conversation to go in a certain thematic direction. Like, okay, we're going to be talking about notifications in this call but the person might mention something about i don't know something deeper in the flow or some other side part of the app and i think it's important to listen for opportunities to discover new things from that person and for this reason i tend i don't know how i'll be curious to see how you feel i tend to not like scripts i know a lot of people will come up with user research scripts and they will plan out the whole fucking conversation like bullet points of Here's how we will introduce ourselves. Here's how we will frame the problem. Like, mm-hmm. it's just so mechanical. I really prefer just try and make it as conversational as possible. Thematically, try and keep it on track, you know, nudge people towards the areas that you're really trying to learn about. But if they bring up something new and unexpected, I love to dig in on that and you'll come away with something uh, insightful. So I I tend to stay away from scripts. Anyways, this has been my uh, 10-minute monologue on (laughs) my research experience. Marshall, how does any of this resonate with you? Yeah, that was really good. I I think my experience has been a little bit more on the formal side, by which I mean a lot more on the formal side. But but a lot of it rings true. I I think one of the things to call out is I end up like you said, if, if they say something cool, you want to dive deep on a given thing that they mention. Uh, I can't necessarily do that because the researcher isn't paying attention to my pings throughout <laughs> throughout the mm, study. Mm-hmm. So I can only catch them in between. And having a level of removal, especially in formal situations, can actually be a pretty big benefit because it can force you to not rabbit a hole and start solving individual people's problems like you were 100%. saying earlier. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's great. The other thing I would say is that there are two kinds of research well there's probably more but there's like two major kinds of research that i would expect you to be doing and those are very different one is product research which i think is what we're talking about here like a given feature but the other is foundational research just about your users like what are your users like and what do they do and what is their behavior and how do they feel about given things regardless of whether it's attached to a feature or not 
And I think just fast about how we incorporate user feedback, like that's the type of user feedback you get that just influences everything and, and becomes a foundational principle stuff that you, that gets injected into everything that you build. I have a good, an example of that, that I got to experience. I worked on the payments team at Facebook and we went to India because India has such a massively growing digital payments ecosystem. And the research literally was just like, how do you use money? <laughs> like we would just talk to you like, show us your phone and show us all the places on here that you use money. So it'd be a lot yeah. of shopping, but then you find a lot of really interesting use cases. Like uh, one that came up is like really community oriented savings plans. Mm. So everyone in the community would contribute to like this little chip fund, hmm. maybe like a hundred bucks a month. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on a rotating basis, you would have access to that month's funds. So once a year, you get a big payout, and then the rest of the year, you're chipping in just a little bit. And this was wow. really useful for people who are making larger purchases, have like a medical emergency, planning for a trip, like any of these kinds of things where you're going to need to spend a lot at once. You just pay into this chip fund a little bit, and then once a year, with some flexibility, obviously, it's a tight-knit community, you get a big payout. And how I don't know, how would you know that if you don't go over there and just talk with people like, Tell me about how you, you use money and interact with money every day. Yeah. Uh, so that would be like an example of more foundational research here. Like we had no idea what we were going to build out of that, right? It was just trying to figure out if there's opportunity. Yeah, but now that you know it, that will influence everything you do afterwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully this helped answer your question. Yeah, probably worth doubling up here and saying, you know, I'm not an expert, just have had a little bit yep. of experience yep, yep, yep. here. So. <laughs> We will get a researcher on here to ask more questions. I have a few that come to mind, and Marshall's been, yeah, you've been trying to get on here for a long time. Yep. And also for people listening, if you have other things that you've learned over the years, I'd love to hear them. So tweet at us at Design Details FM. We're always learning from everybody here and ongoing, ongoing learning. So research is great. Hope this was helpful and uh, tell us what's up. Okay, cool things. Okay, time for cool things. Mine is actually a, a bit of a suggestion. So a colleague of mine at Google named Dave Crossland mailed me and, and said he's a listener of the show and pointed out a new font. Well, I guess it came out in July, but uh, a font that's on Google Fonts called Recursive Sans and Mono. And what's interesting about this font, not only is it a, a free open source font, but it's variable. It's a variable font, which I probably won't describe this very well. Brian, can you can you describe what a variable font is? A variable font is uh, a single typeface that can adjust itself based on certain conditions. Um, an example of this that is happening like right now, obviously the example we're talking about here, this recursive sans and mono, but SF San Francisco from Apple they recently just merged the SF Pro text and SF Pro display into a single typeface because they now have a variable typeface. So when you flip over, what's the threshold? 19 points? I thought it was like 22, but yeah, sure. Whatever. Whenever you flip over the threshold where you would normally have to like manually select you know, SF Pro text versus display, it'll automatically do that for you with the single typeface. Uh, and I think variable fonts have like a lot of other features about how they, you know, you can handle ligatures in different ways if certain letters appear next to each other. And mm -hmm. they, they, they they might adjust based on their size or positioning. I, I'm not sure. Tell me yeah. more. Okay, you weren't nearly as concise as I'd hoped you'd be. Uh, <laughs> well, um, she, uh, you put me on the spot. Well, yeah, sorry. I didn't give you any warning. Um, 
the the thing that's really cool about variable fonts to me is the ability to change them dynamically, right? Like they right, they right. it's nothing's baked in. The the thickness of the font, the slant of the italic, whether it's sans or not, right? Like whether it's mono or not, all of this stuff can be adjusted and not just on a binary level, but like there's sliders for this stuff. So if you go to recursive.design there's a really nice site here that uh, that has some pretty crazy stuff going on, including the entire body text on the entire site is editable. You can like add to it. The whole the whole thing is in recursive, obviously, but it's got little widgets where you can change a a whatever string you want to write in and and adjust whether it's using mono or casual uh, or what the weight is, the slant, all uh, recursiveness. So like. It's pretty cool, especially because it's all dynamic. So you can get exactly what you want, regardless of what you think of the font. I just love the functionality of it, right? Yeah, the website is great. Everyone should check this out. And I think what you said about it not being like steps or or binary choice of like the font looks like this or this, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a gradient. It's everything in between. And so you can get really fine-tuned controls over exactly how you want the thing to look and feel. Extraordinarily versatile, the site Mm -hmm. says. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that's my cool thing. Nice. Uh, my cool thing this week is an application, which I don't know. I guess I would recommend it for people to poke through the onboarding. I thought it had a really good onboarding, but the app is called Public. You've probably seen ads for it in your Twitter feed this week. It's basically a competitor to Robinhood with free trading in the stock market, and they give you five bucks if you sign up. I don't. It, it, it feels very similar functionality-wise to a Robinhood, but there's one big difference. And the big difference is that you have a profile. Like you have a public profile, hence the name of the app, public. And when you visit people's profiles, obviously with some level of privacy controls that you can configure, uh, it'll show you your portfolio, not dollar amounts, but it'll say, you know, this person is invested in Apple, Amazon, and Google, for example. And people can sort of upgrade certain of their investments to long term holds, you know, indicating high confidence. And anytime you make a trade, let's say you buy a share of Apple stock, the next step after you pay for it is like a composer, like you're composing a post on Twitter or on Facebook. And you can actually add notes about why you made that decision. And that goes into a timeline of activity for people that you follow or for, I don't know, influencers on the platform. Anyways, I don't know. I'm half and half on if I find this useful but I'm 100% on I find this interesting as an evolution of stock trading apps. Like all of a sudden I can see why people are making decisions. There's people writing long form content on here, like multiple paragraphs explaining their logic behind certain buys or sells. Uh, it's intermixed with news about companies you follow. So if you follow Amazon, you're going to see little posts in your news feed about updates to Amazon's business and people can reply to that. So there's like comment threads. It's just like a really interesting dynamic to layer on top of stock trading. So anyways, I guess I clicked the ad and tried it out. The onboarding was great. The design is really nice. It's a good app if you just want to look at pretty pixels, I think. And then, of course, if you are interested in trading and learning how the stock market works, I don't know exactly how good of advice you'll find in here, but, <laughs> you know, uh, you can follow people and, and poke around. So that's uh, it's called Public, and it's a nice app. Nice. It looks pretty. It is pretty, yeah. Cool thing. All right. Well, that's it. Yeah, let's get out of here. I'm melting. Okay. This has been episode 363 of the Design Details podcast. Huge shout out to Webflow for making this episode possible. If you are making a website, 
you should make it on Webflow. They have really, really good tools to bring really rich interactions and animations straight to your website. You can transform elements, styling, positioning, all based on any type of input, like scroll position, mouse interactions. It really allows you to build expressive, personal websites. You can learn more at designdetails.fm slash Webflow. You can get started there. If you sign up for an annual account, we're also going to save you 10%. So thank you, Webflow, and your awesome website maker for making this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us directly, you can go to patreon.com slash designdetails. For just a dollar a month, you get access to a bonus segment in every episode called The Sidebar. This week, we talked about work journaling and keeping track of the day-to-day details of your work. Uh, Marshall shared some tips on how to do that really effectively. So uh, if you want to hear the sidebar in this episode, all future episodes, and our backlog, that's at patreon.com slash design details. Of course, if you need more podcasts, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just, just like, like you. you. Otherwise, tweet at us, design details FM, say hi, send us feedback. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll see you next week. All right, bye. Was that like a Wicked Witch of the West kind of vibe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was going for. Okay. A little shriller, please. (laughs) I'm melting. (laughs) That was good. That's nice. Yeah, that was nice. I've been working on it. I kind of wanted the video on. I imagine you made a good face, but. (laughs) God. The audio will suffice. I'm just shiny as fuck right now, dude. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get out of here.